I really feel like that's the difference between good athletes and great athletes. Great athletes are able to both look at the numbers, you know, the actual analytics, the actual data and use that data, but they're also incredibly aware of, of their own um, sensation and, you know, and how they feel and where they are um, at that level. The Triathlon Show 251. Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to another episode of that triathlon show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and on today's episode I interview coach Ryan Bolton. Ryan was an Olympic athlete from the Sydney 2000 Olympics. He has won Ironman Lake Placid and been on the podium in various Ironman races uh, in his long distance career. And uh, now he is uh, the founder of Bolton Endurance and coaches elite triathletes and runners. Some of his most famous athletes would be Ben Hoffman, who was fourth in Kona in 2019, and Caroline Rotich, who is a marathoner and half marathoner and is uh, a former winner of the Boston Marathon. So we'll get into his coaching methodology and discussions around how he periodizes things, what he thinks about base training, etc., etc. Tons of great things in this interview uh, that uh, I really, really enjoyed uh, chatting about. Uh, But uh, before we do that, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. If you haven't checked out Precision Hydration's blog, that's a wealth of knowledge about not only hydration, but endurance training in general. One of the episodes that I think is, uh, sorry, not episodes, one of the blog posts that uh, I think is good to highlight from the blog is called How to Stay Hydrated During Winter Training. I will link to that in the episode description. And this is a blog post written by Andy Blow, where Andy has provided some tips for staying hydrated during the off-season or during winter training. And he has given some takeaways. There's a list of five take-home messages at the end of the post, so Even if you think that, well, I don't have time to read a blog post, you can get the main message of the post in just 30 seconds if you scroll down to that. So if nothing else, that would be something that is worth taking your time to do. So we'll link to that in show notes, as I said. And if you want to get 15% off Precision Hydration's electrolytes, use the promo code DETTRIATHLONSHOW15. And big thanks to Roka. You can go to roca.com forward slash TTS. That is the landing page where you'll get a 20% discount code for any Roca order. One thing that uh, Roca is uh, focusing on heavily in addition to their traditional wetsuits and tri suits and like is their sunglasses and their prescription glasses. So these are the prescription glasses are for now offered on the US website. Uh, but uh, they are similar to the sunglasses in that the styles are really classic and uh, good looking, uh, but they're designed to do anything in them, whether it's running, cycling, or doing CrossFit or whatever you want to do. Uh, they stay on. They, you can't shake them off your head. They are lightweight. Uh, they have the Geeko anti-slip technology and uh, all the research and development that has gone into uh, Roka's uh, sunglasses line has gone into the prescription glasses as well. In addition to that, you have loads of customization options for the sunglasses and the uh, prescription glasses, and you have home try-on options as well. Uh, this applies to the 
to the United States though. So again, the webpage is roca.com forward slash TTS and that's where you can get a 20% discount code. Without any further ado, here's the interview with Ryan Bolton. Welcome to That Triathlon Show, Ryan. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's uh, morning here in the United States, so I think I'm catching you in the afternoon, correct? <laughs> yeah, late afternoon, early evening. Uh, so uh, it's uh, it's a day of podcasting here, actually. I, I have uh, three of these interviews lined up for today, so it's exciting. It's one of the parts of my job that I really love the most. So uh, excited to be yeah. in the middle of it. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. No, I'm a... Uh, Currently, I'm in Santa Fe, New Mexico, which is kind of my home base, although I feel like I'm only here about 30 days of the year because of travel with, uh, with racing and et cetera. But, um, you know, Santa Fe, is, it's an amazing place in the United States because it's at about 2,100 meters, a little bit higher than that. And you have access up to, you know, 3,500 meters. Um, so it's, it's a really great place for altitude training. The facilities here, we have a 50-meter pool. Um, and there's just kind of running and cycling galore. So it's a nice place. However, it's been a, a bit of a cold and snowy winter. So as I look out my window right now, I'm, I'm looking at like a, a foot or so of snow on the ground. So which, yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's been a little more challenging for training this year. Oh, well, for sure. Lots of indoor trainer uh, usage for the triathletes that you have there and treadmill yeah. for runners. Yeah, for the local athletes, that's for sure. Yeah, although... And I, we'll get into this more in, you know, in the future of this conversation. But, you know, most of my athletes, um, especially my professionals, are not based here. Um, they're based all over. But we, we meet up in various different places, including here, but normally not here at this time of the year. All right. So uh, let's get into your background a little bit more because um, you're a U.S. Olympian in triathlon, but you also have a strong running pedigree. That's uh, your first entry into endurance sports, I think. So can you talk a little bit more about where you came from and then how you got into coaching and, and your coaching history as well? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I grew up, I grew up in a relatively rural area in Wyoming, which, you know, is in the north kind of, you know, western part of the United States and um, actually at altitude as well. Um, and fortunately, the place where I grew up had a, was really supportive of athletics, all types of athletics. and. Um, I was kind of an energetic kid. <laughs> and so I started swimming at a very, very young age, I think, to try to uh, cut back on my energy levels. And, um, and then, you know, I got into running at that age, too. And I actually got into BMX bike racing, um, which was a lot of fun. But, uh, you know, as I progressed, I, I decided to run in college, because that was what I was strongest in. Um, I could have swam in college as well. But the life of swimmers is is not very glamorous, and the thought of getting in water for you know the, the those four years of my collegiate career at five a.m. every morning really did not sound appealing. Whereas going for a run at five in the morning sounded much more. So I chose to be a runner, and um, yeah, I, I had an interesting background with triathlon at that point because I actually you know this was in the very early nineties, and. Um, you know, I mean, you know, the ITU World Championships were happening at that point, and I, uh, I, I was actually dabbling in little triathlons here and there, but you know, mostly I was a runner, so I wasn't doing it too extensively. But um, the summer 
after my freshman year of college, I was living in Boulder, Colorado, which was only two hours from where I went to college. And um, one of my best friends ran um, at Boulder. And so I went down there and uh, had nothing to do with triathlon. Um, once again, this was in, what, 1992. It had all to do with um, Boulder was way cooler than where I went to school. And there were a lot more cute girls in Boulder than where I went to school. So it seemed like a brilliant place to spend the summer. And um, when I was there, I was a lifeguard. So I was a lifeguard at uh, Scott Carpenter Pool, which is kind of a famous swim pool in Boulder, if you've ever been there before. It's an outdoor 50 meter and a lot of people train there. And um, during, uh, I would always swim on my lunch break and uh, a pro triathlete. And, you know, that was back in the days when, uh, you know, Mark Allen, Dave Scott, uh, Christian Bustos, Mike Pig, a lot of kind of the early big names of triathlon were, were training in Boulder. And and uh, so, you know, I kind of got to see these guys on a daily basis and it was kind of normal. Um, and once again, I wasn't really a triathlete. So, I mean, I knew who these guys were, but, uh, you know, they weren't in my realm or in my world, I guess. But uh, anyway, I would swim at lunch and a pro triathlete saw me swimming. He said, hey, you look like you're a runner, but you're a really good swimmer. Have you done a triathlon? And I said, yeah, I have before. And so um, he said, well, you know, are you interested in doing them again? And I said, well, I'm training for a cross country season coming up in the fall, but, you know, maybe. And he said, well, you know, if you want to see how good you can be, you should go to the U.S. National Championships. And I said, OK. And he kind of gave me the information. And um, I went on a couple bike rides with this guy. and. Anyway, at the end of the summer, I went to national championships and I won. I won the national championships and um, USA Triathlon at the time, like kind of grabbed me and they said, who are you? You know, we don't even know who you are. You haven't been a junior in our <laughs> whatever. And But I, I ran a really fast run split, of course. I can't remember what I ran, but probably like 3130 or something off the bike, which I mean, for whatever, a 19 year old was pretty good. And um, so uh, the next year I decided to uh, I move and live in Boulder again for the summer and actually train for triathlon. And that was the summer of 93. And at the end of that summer, um, I, uh, I did the world championships in Manchester, England, and um, I ended up getting second, second place there. And I believe I had the fastest run split of the day um, over everyone, over all the pros and everyone. Um, I think Spencer Smith won that year and Lessing was maybe second or vice versa. I can't quite remember. And um, yeah, and in the junior ranks, um, it was a really interesting year too, especially for my era. Because if you go back and look at some of the names in the race, there were some pretty, um, you know, notable names. Uh, like I think Chris McCormick was fourth place that year. I think Norman Stodler was in the race. But anyway, kind of a lot of the old school guys from my generation were there. But unfortunately, is I, I did great. I was whatever, 19 years old, and I got second at Worlds. But about two weeks later, I went back to college and my running coach was said, congratulations, that's a great job. However, um, we're paying you <laughs> to run <laughs> in college, not to uh, do this whole triathlon thing, and you need to make a decision. And I kind of weighed, uh, you know, the cost of a college education versus what I could make as a professional triathlete for those couple of years. And um, I decided to completely hang the bike and, uh, and swim Kazi up and, uh, and, and just run my college career out, which actually ended up being a great decision. Yeah, and I can imagine with the cost of college education, I'm lucky being from Finland with free education all the, up through, all the way up through university level. But, but uh, I, 
don't find it surprising that you uh, that you chose to go go that route and uh, make sure that you got your college education paid for. Uh, yeah. But, uh, how how did that then proceed into you getting back into triathlon and uh, and eventually becoming professional and going to the Olympics? Yeah. Well, you know, it was it was beneficial, and I think in this day and age, and I deal with this actually in my current. Um, one of my roles right now is I work with uh, USA Triathlon. I'm, I'm their high-performance technical advisor is my title with them. But looking at athletes who you know make the choice to either stay in school in their single sport and or pursue triathlon. And I think in this day and age, um, I don't know if that would be the best choice, honestly. Like I think it's it's good to you know be developing those triathlon skills throughout that pretty critical period. But back in my day, it was actually, I felt like it was an advantage to stay in school because I was really able to develop my run and I became an even better runner, um, you know, in those, those last couple of years in college. But kind of serendipitously, uh, it was 96, I was finishing college and they announced, uh, you know, that the Olympics or that triathlon were going to be in the Olympics in the 2000 cycle. And um, right around the same time, um, I was chatting with USA Triathlon and some of the people involved there, and I also um, was invited and got a really great opportunity to go stay in Southern California with Dan Ampfield. Um, you know, at the time, Dan, you know, now he runs Slow Twitch, um, but at the time, he was the owner of Quintana Roo, which, you know, they were kind of at the forefront of the triathlon wetsuit and bike, um, uh, like, movement. And uh, so for me, you know, I was a, a totally dead broke 21 year old and um, Dan was offering me, you know, free bikes and free wetsuits and a place to live and, you know, this amazing training in Southern California. And uh, I basically uh, said, I'm in and I moved out there and uh, instantly kind of dove in to the triathlon scene with 90, 1997 being my first year of racing. And uh, fortunately, just based on, you know, what I'd done as a junior and everything, I was able to get a pro card and, you know, start racing professionally right away. And, uh, then the road to the Olympics in, uh, in the two thousands, uh, how was that a difficult process? Was there a lot of competition for, for the slots and, and how did that eventually pan out? Because I know that after that, you also went into long distance racing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You know, it was interesting back in the day and once again now that i'm you know very involved with the itu process again um it was chaos <laughs> it was uh we were really on our own um when it came to racing and everything in 97 um i didn't do any itu stuff i actually started doing itu stuff in uh in 98 and uh it was really like you know we were basically figuring out our own travel you know, and how to get to races and the point system was really confusing to me. I mean, it, it still can be if you're not educated on it, but, um, uh, yeah, it was kind of up to me and with, without too much support from the Federation, um, they gave a little bit of financial support, but not tons of logistical support, um, you know, to get to those races and figure the scene out. Uh, at that point, I would say there was only one American that was really embracing the ITU circuit and that was Barb Lindquist. And um, fortunately, Barb, it was one of my first ITU races, if not my first, it was in Gamagori, Japan. And once again, I was kind of this green <laughs> triathlete and I showed up there and uh, with no hotel room, but as a mistake, there was no hotel room for me. 
And uh, Barb kind of like grabbed me and uh, took me under her wing for those first couple races and started showing me the ropes, which was incredibly, incredibly beneficial. Um, as far as competitive, I mean, it was very, it was still very competitive. I would say the racing's different and we can talk about that later in our talk um, than it, than it is now. But um, I mean, making the team and, you know, that was basically when everyone was starting to really aggressively, you know, go after points and try to get ranked so that you could make ultimately your, your Olympic team and, and, you know, qualify for the Olympic trials process, whatever that was for your country. How did the Olympics go? And did you move into long distance uh, right uh, after that? Or was there a transition period where you still were racing ITU or perhaps both at the same time? Yeah, I made a quick transition. Um, so my second year, first year of racing, I was just on my own as far as training goes. And I was basically beating the crap out of myself, as you can imagine. You know, I was a 22-year-old that knew absolutely everything. And, um, and that was stupid and dangerous because as we all know at 22, we don't know everything. In fact, we know very little, <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, I thought I knew I was doing a bit and I just kind of like totally trashed myself with training. And, um, so my second year of racing, I actually, um, started working with Joe Friel and, um, you know, Joe's like, uh, I mean, he's, he's kind of a godfather of training within triathlon and, You know, he's written so many books about it and he was he was exactly what I needed and I continue to have a great relationship with him to this day and he actually coached me throughout my entire career but um, he coached me through the Olympics the Olympics went okay I would say I didn't go in um, to the Olympics with a hundred percent fitness I was just like uh, um, you know little issues here and there And, uh, and I had an okay race. I actually had a good swim, but I crashed on the bike. I think there were about seven or eight of us that went down on the bike. I was kind of like, almost like right in the middle of this pile up at a bottleneck. And, um, as you know, in draft legal racing, you know, the, the pack was gone. The front pack at that point, I mean, I think there were, you know, whatever, 50, 55 guys in the race. Um, the front pack at that point was seriously at least 30 of us, I would say, because, uh, It really came together, and um, but anyway, um, that was the last lap of the bike. Yeah, I went down, um, and it was over. <laughs> I mean, I got back up, and I mean, I had holes in my in my kit and all that stuff, and a few scrapes. So nothing from an injury standpoint that was keeping me from finishing. But um, I basically had a time trial to the very tail end of the pack. You know, coming into transition, maybe 30 seconds back from uh, you know the guys that were uh, you know coming first into transition and I'm all lactated up and uh, it made it tough. So I ended up getting 25th place, which uh, not super proud of, but uh, I made the best of the day that I could. And uh, people often ask, you know, you know, if you wouldn't have crashed, do you think you could have won? And uh, my answer is no, <laughs> I don't think I could have. I don't think it was my day. I don't think that I was in that level of fitness that it would have taken uh, to, to, to win that race. So, I mean, the guys who won that race they, and Simon Whitfield who actually won, completely deserve that victory yeah well I, i guess that's a consolation in a way to to know that that at, on that day you probably wouldn't have won anyway like if you were feeling that you were in the shape that you seriously could have won then it might be uh, a bit more a bittersweet to have that that kind of of accident happen and but you went on to to win uh, some ironman races ironman boulder i believe and uh, and race for a while on the long distance circuit before going into coaches so just to wrap up the career story here with how that went about and uh, and then how you came to to move into coaching yeah so 
You're right. After the 2000 Olympics, um, I basically sat down with my coach and he, you know, asked basically where my heart was and what I wanted to do. And I always felt like Ironman, I was probably a better physiologically, a better Ironman athlete. And so um, I kind of made the decision to completely cut ITU out um, and draft legal stuff out and instantly dive into Ironman stuff. And that's what I did is I did Ironman racing for the next four years. Um, yeah, I won Ironman Lake Placid. I, waste, I, I raced Hawaii a couple times. I qualified for Hawaii um, every year until, um, you know, I, I retired. But um, And I never put together a, a very great race there. And we can talk about that later, too. But, I mean, that race takes um, experience and everything. And uh, I guess if there's one regret in my career, I wish that I would have given myself more time there. But... Yeah, I only raced for four more years after that. So technically, I was only racing professional for eight years. But um, I just I got to the point, and I was still pretty young, where I was feeling um, not totally fulfilled with what I was doing um, as a, as an athlete, and I was definitely getting more um, interested in the coaching side of things. You know, my undergraduate degree was in exercise physiology. Um, I I had a seed planted to go back to graduate school in uh, exercise physiology, metabolism, nutrition type studies. And uh, it just, I, I got to the point where I wasn't feeling like I was putting a hundred percent into, you know, training and racing and being a pro triathlete really that's, you know, you've got to be basically a hundred percent committed and said, if I can't be a hundred percent committed, I'm going to, you know, uh, drop this and, and, and go back to school. And that's what I did. Exactly. I, I immediately went back to graduate school. Um, I think the day that I sat down with my coach and said, I don't think I'm going to race anymore. The next day I was uh, talking to my old graduate professors and, or, or yeah, college professors about graduate school. And, uh, by four months later, I was actually back in school. Yeah. And uh, after school, is that when you got into coaching or what was uh, the steps that happened from there? From there? Yeah, it, it was. You know, when I went back to school, um, I, I stayed in close contact with my old coach, um, Joe Friel, and he had a coaching group and he was really encouraging me to get involved with coaching. And I actually took on, um, you know, a few just age group clients uh, during that period. And then as soon as I got out, I actually went to work uh, with a nonprofit organization, which was fun. And um, I also, uh, you know, was coaching some people. And then, and then I made like a pretty big decision um, to move to Santa Fe, New Mexico. And when I moved to Santa Fe, the coaching stuff really started taking off, off with, with both the East African runners that I work with and continue to work with, but also, um, you know, with the triathletes. So what does your athlete roster look like now? You have, as you say, both runners and triathletes in your group. And, and what is the breakdown of uh, pros versus amateurs for you, but also for your coaching group? Because now you have a, an entire coaching group yourself, I believe. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's, it's evolved over the years. And uh, initially, I was working with mostly age group triathletes, um, you know, amateurs. And then I had a fairly bigger group of uh, elite runners and um, East Africans. And over the years, based on time and and uh, kind of interest, I would say is I, I weaned off the runners and I still have uh, a, a few like um, world-class runners and um, which is, which is great. And then uh, 
I also, but over the years, I've kind of transitioned into working with more tra- more tra- professional triathletes. And then, of course, I have my age groupers. But um, our coaching group, we have about 15 coaches that work with us. And they work with um, all levels of athletes, uh, like, uh, you know, from around the world, basically. And our coaches are kind of based everywhere as well. So it, it yeah. works out really well that way. Yeah. yeah. So, so who are some of the, the household names that people will know about that, that you're coaching in, whether it's triathlon or, or running? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I say some of my most notables, um, is in triathlon. Um, you know, I coach Ben Hoffman. Um, I've worked with Ben for a few years now. Um, I would say the best year that we've had is this past year with him. He, he, he just, had a really great year. I mean, he in Hawaii he was right around the eight hour mark. He was fourth place. He ran a two forty two. He's only um he had the second fastest run split of the day. And then, you know, a month after that he went to Ironman Florida and ran a two thirty six off the bike, which was phenomenal. Um and, you know, Ben Ben in general is known as being a cyclist, a really strong cyclist. And one of the things that we really wanted to work on because it's critical um is, you know, to win Kona is you've got to be able to run fast. And uh that's what we really want to develop that. Um, I'm, uh, now working with Heather Jackson, um, who once again, top American, uh, female in, in Ironman, I believe she was fifth in Kona this last year. I'm super psyched to be working with her. Um, she's a really great athlete. And even though she's been around for a while, I feel like there's a lot of things that, um, uh, she can improve upon that will make her a real threat in Kona. Um, I work with Caroline Roteach. She's probably one of the most famous people that I work with because she uh, won the Boston Marathon um, a few years back with me. She's still running. Um, she's actually running Boston again this year. Um, she actually ran a 108 half marathon yesterday um, in Houston, which was a, a decent, it was a training race for her and it was a decent race. But um, yeah, I'm continuing to work with her. A uh, couple young guy triathletes, uh, one that I would say had a breakthrough year last year. Um, his name's Sam Long. He's an American based in Boulder. Um, he won a couple 70.3s last year and Ironman Chattanooga. Um, young, 20, actually just turned 24. He's 23. So tons of potential, just a beast on the bike. Um, and then I guess, yeah, I've had a handful of other um, athletes, uh, you know, pro triathletes and a couple runners as well. Mm. So, uh, in terms of your coaching, what is your, if you can describe it, and I kind of really don't like the word coaching philosophy or the term coaching philosophy, <laughs> but it's the one I use because I don't know what, how else to describe what I'm, what I'm trying to ask about. So can you just describe your coaching, I guess? Right. Yeah, totally. Um, I guess, well, a few key like terms that come up that uh, I'm a big subscriber of is definitely you know, periodization, I periodize training in, in a pretty big way and also specificity. And when I talk about specificity, you know, it's uh, both race dependent, but probably more important than that athlete dependent. I can tell you that like, um, you know, athletes that I work with, like, sure, we have some core principles that we follow and that I believe in. Um, but definitely each athlete I treat as an individual and, Um, you know, they respond to different things, you know, what Ben Hoffman needs is very different than what Heather Jackson needs. And we, uh, you know, we, we address those things and we work on those things, but I would say core principles is like I said, that specificity factor and periodization. I really, um, believe in, you know, building a, a big 
solid foundation and, and a big solid base with athletes and with some good good volume for sure. And then, of course, as we get closer to competitions, adding that specificity phase um, of the training while maintaining pretty big volume. I, I would guess that, like in general, relative to uh, like maybe the general population, um, I uh, I do uh, believe in like like higher volume work and you know balancing that out with you know the intensity and very much race specific work, um, uh, you know and. I also believe in a lot of strength-based work. And when I say that, I mean, you know, like uh, specific workouts that are, um, how do I describe it? Like uh, um, designed to replicate uh, the, the feelings and sensations that you get in an Ironman competition, um, you know, late in the race, which is hard to do. So um, that's a big part of it as well. Um, but like I said, probably more important than anything is, you know, the specific things for athletes and making athletes or helping athletes address their, their weaknesses. And that, I think that's a really big thing because, you know, when you're a hammer, everything you see is a nail. And so you work with a person who's a very good cyclist and they want to ride more and you need to get them to swim or run more and, and et cetera. Mm. You know, you can go with all those examples. Yeah. 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 So that, that's an obvious one. The, like if there's uh, one particular discipline that's lagging behind, like just doing more of that is, is an obvious way of, uh, of working with that individual specific needs. Uh, what are some other examples of how that might look like? Maybe, maybe it's not the disciplines, but uh, specific aspects of their performance or physiology that you want to address for the individual can you give some example of that sorry sorry can you repeat that like the like yeah are, are there any any other examples of uh, other than just if you're weak um, in your swim then you need to swim more or if you're weak in your run yeah. then you need to run more do you have any other examples of how you work with that individual specific uh, specificity and and the individual's needs in mind like do you for example do some sort of testing to determine physiological needs or is it more a case of uh, looking at race performances and see where the performance maybe breaks down and addressing that or or how do you figure out i guess what the specific needs of the individual are absolutely yeah it's a combination of all those things of course and um you know one of the most basic tests and i i say this with age groupers um you know amateur athletes as well is if you ask a person if they would rather do a six hour bike ride or if they would rather do a one hour bike ride with, uh, you know, six by five minute all out intervals, and they tell you that they would rather do the six hour bike ride, that probably means that they need that hour bike ride with the six, five minute intervals <laughs> and vice versa. You know, you can almost tell a person's physiology and or their needs by just how they answer a simple question like that. But um, but one is just looking at like what you said is obviously you know looking at race results where are they weaker you know where are they stronger but also looking at testing and we do do you know different types of you know physiological testing metabolic testing you know see where they are um, you know strong um, where they do need work and once again I like to look at metabolism a lot. You know, like how are they processing sugar? How are they processing fat? Um, you know, at what rates, at what percentages of threshold are they doing those things? 
um, you know, how they respond to that. And, um, you know, it obviously would look different between an Olympic distance uh, athlete and an Ironman type athlete or even a 70.3 athlete. Um, but the other thing is, is, uh, you know, watching their training and watching how they respond. And, um, you know, that's pretty simple, especially when you're hands on with athletes and seeing them on a somewhat regular basis. You can see, especially as you're working with them and with other athletes, you know, which people have, uh, you know, like uh, need, like, for example, VO2 work, what type of people need more like tempo work. And um, it's funny because people with Caroline Roteach, um, I mean, she's one of the best runners in the world. And people have asked me, have you ever given her a VO2 max test? And I said, no, I, I've never, I've never done that with her. And honestly, I don't want to. And uh, because in fact, like with her, as an example, I don't think her VO2 is ultimately that high on paper. And, um, and because of the way she responds in workouts to that type of stimulus, you know, and um, whereas she responds to other type of stimulus, uh, um, or, or her ability, I guess, to say, performing in a certain stimulus is way better. And to me, like as a coach, obviously, I said, well, that's a weakness of hers. That's something that we need to work on. So you inject that more into the training program for her. Whereas, in, you know, I wouldn't necessarily do that in another athlete of her same caliber who maybe needs a different um, uh, input. Mm, yeah, that makes perfect sense. And, and in terms of the periodization, that's another interesting point that I want to discuss a bit more because it's something that uh, you quite often hear, although I'm not saying that a lot of coaches are doing the same thing uh, around uh, around a year, but uh, but periodization seems to be falling a bit out of favor and uh, a lot of people don't really like to use that term even even yeah, though in sure. some ways it is what they're doing so maybe we're just talking semantics here but it seems that maybe it's a bigger part of your coaching than it might be for some others because a lot of coaches seem to be talking about doing things more at a consistent level uh, through the season these days that's the impression that i get from from doing a lot of these injuries would you agree with that and uh, and how come you have uh, found that for you the periodized the really periodized way seems to work so well right well so i think it is a lot semantics like what you said is um you know there's a you know, there's so much talk about periodization and people, uh, you know, saying, oh, I'm getting away from that. And then you say, well, let me see what the year looks like for you. And they're like, well, you know, we go through a rest period and then we build up for a while and we add some more specificity. It's kind of like, okay, yeah, that's periodization. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. But uh, but also, I guess another thing which is interesting, and in, in this, this happens, I would say, more with like short course athletes is like actually block periodization, which... Um, you know, is kind of, you know, a, a similar concept of, you know, throwing in very, um, you know, different types of training cycles, depending upon, you know, what's coming up ahead, and really blocking it out that way. And um, I would say with shorter course athletes that have maybe more peaks in their season, then like, um, you know, that's doable or have more variability in the types of racing that they're doing, you know, they're doing anything from, you know, super sprint racing to like 70.3 racing. Um, you may have a little more of that, but me and traditionally, um, I would definitely say that I'm more of a, a, a traditional periodized schedule in that I'm, I'm a big believer in, you know, taking a rest period. And when I, when I look at periodization, you can look at it on a yearly cycle on say a monthly ish cycle and then also on a weekly cycle and um 
you know, yearly I do is particularly with Ironman um, type athletes and or marathoners, you know, your longer racing athletes, I really do like to go through uh, phases of, you know, rest and then, you know, and then stimulus and stress and some pretty extreme stress and then, you know, and then resting and recovering from that. I would say one way that maybe I'm different with some periodized uh, training is I like to keep as long as an athlete's capable of handling it and usually more experienced uh, athletes and especially Ironman athletes, um, I like to keep volume relatively high. So the goal in base season or, uh, you know, whatever you call it when you're building your foundation you know, is to build up some strength and some foundation and some aerobic fitness so that when I start injecting like the specificity and speed work and race specific work that we can maintain a pretty similar volume um, than what we were doing in a base phase. And like I said, with, with Ironman training, that makes a lot of sense, or at least to me it does, because you need to be, you know, because really when you're talking about race specificity, you're talking about whatever, you know, seven and a half to, you know, eight and a half hour, nine hour race, depending. Um, so like, you know, an athlete, like people would be like, Oh, so you get rid of volume, you know, going into the, you know, uh, you know, specific phases. It's like, no, because you still have to be able to ride 180 kilometers and run, you know, 42 kilometers, which is quite a bit of volume in itself. So, um, the goal of those early, uh, like the base season basically is to get an athlete strong enough, healthy enough, um, aerobically fit enough to be able to handle the more race, uh, speed specificity at a similar volume without breaking down. And, um, and another thing, um, that I am an advocate of though, as well is, you know, recovery and, and rest cycles and definitely, um, you know, uh, injecting that recovery into that. So, um, in, into those cycles on a, you know, the, and once again, that's very athlete dependent. Some athletes, you know, that's every couple of weeks we need to inject a few days to, you know, six, seven days in and other athletes, um, you know, it, they can go five weeks before, you know, you need that. It totally is athlete dependent. Yeah. That, that uh, gives us a really good overview. So thank you for that explanation. So uh, if we go into just as an example, and uh, this could be perhaps even if you, uh, well, choose a, a professional triathlete as an example here uh, to give an idea. Uh, for the structure of a training week, if you can give an example of this time of year when we are in January and they're probably in their base phase doing quite a lot of volume, what might that week look like? Yeah, like, you know, a typical week, well, I guess you want to know, like, actual numbers, like volume numbers. Or yeah, just kind of yeah, a little bit like that would be good, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, once again, it's dependent upon um, the athlete and, and what they're working on. But normally in, say, like a January phase and even a February phase, depending upon when first races are, like, we're often working on, um, you know, a specific weakness. And um, so what would, what that would depend upon, and this is just kind of like a general overall concept is, you know, whatever that weakness is, is that's probably where the volume relatively is at its highest. So, um, you know, if somebody's like working on their biking, um, we're working on a lot of uh, strength work on the bike and putting in, you know, bigger than normal volume. Whereas, you know, the other two sports maybe in general are taking a little bit more of uh, a back seat. So um, if we're talking about an athlete who's relatively balanced, you know, then um, 
basically uh, for, you know, swimming and biking and running, I would say there's probably two to three workouts of each, each week that uh, consist of like significant or relatively, you know, significant volume. Um, one of the big things though, is I like to make in, a, in at all phases, all times is I like to make hard days hard <laughs> and relatively big and uh, easier days easy. And um, once again, that's all a relative thing because, you know, if a hard day is an eight hour day um, for some specific athlete, you know, an easy day, you know, maybe three hours, but people would be like, oh, well, you know, three hours doesn't seem like an easy day. And it's like, well, if you're doing eight hours the day before it actually is, and at, if a person is at that level of fitness, then that's, uh, you know, something that they can handle. But, you know, this time of the year kind of, yeah, you know, like I said, probably getting three key sessions of each. And another big part that I like to incorporate into this time of the year is actual strength work, like actually being, you know, in the weight room and hitting that relatively hard because uh, you can, without the uh, high level of intensity with, you know, uh, both swimming, biking and running, all three of those, um, you know, you can actually hit the weights a little bit harder and really start, you know, building up that strength too. Once again, as a foundation to uh, build upon when we get into higher intensity work. So can you give an example of uh, one key session per discipline for this pro triathlete at this time of year? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, well, I would say <laughs> in base period, sometimes I would say the most key session is the long aerobic session. <laughs> so mm. no, nothing special about that. Go ride yeah. your bike for six hours. But um, but uh, uh, but uh, another thing, and I, w- I would say this, uh, like specifically with uh, in the pool, um, you know, working on getting fatigued. So doing a longer workout, working with strength work. So paddles like doing pulling, but then making sure and emphasizing some big stroke work at the end. So basically teaching the body how to maintain really, really good form. I mean, ultimately that's what swimming is, is we want people to continue to be able to swim faster, longer while not falling apart, but I'm really emphasizing that. So that's what a swim workout would look like with running right now, um, doing strength work starting to incorporate hills at this point. And when I say hills, like um, I'll, I'll range that from anywhere from like what I would call power hills, which are, you know, anywhere from 80 meters, you know, up to like 30 seconds long um, for once again, to really start working on proper technique, but also building some strength and power. And I would couple that with, you know, a longer aerobic, like lead in run into it. And then maybe afterward, and all the way up to longer hills. So you're actually just going for a longer run on hilly terrain and or doing longer hill repeats. I think the important thing with this time of the year, when you're talking about like that specificity and that workout and how it would look different um, later in the year is that uh, main heart keeping heart rates more in check. And I, I don't know what, you know, what your listeners or you are normally used to like in, in heart rate zones, but it's what I would use. Cause I use like kind of maybe I don't know if you want to call it traditional, but the one through five C zones, yeah. like, you know, doing these types of workouts, like in the three zone, you know, maybe high three zone when they're on these intervals. So obviously the intervals are not near max effort. In fact, they're, they're still, um, you know, slightly below threshold stuff. So it's more about form technique and strength. Um, and on a bike, similar stuff. I love doing over gear work at this time of the year, especially with athletes who need to work 
on bike power, develop bike power, bike strength. So um, low cadence repeats, once again, you know, power levels and or heart rate levels aren't too high. I think that's important and a mistake that like some athletes make is, you know, they start, um, you know, they say, oh, well, I'm going to go do, you know, these over gear repeats today and they're pushing, you know, power, you know, their power zone five or six and, uh, you know, completely destroying themselves. So it's more about the functionality of it, you know, keeping the power, you know, more of that three zone area or heart rate three zone area as well and developing that. So those are kind of three specifics for those. Uh, yeah. At this time of the year. Yeah. Yeah. That, uh, aspect about not uh, going at too high a power at, in your over gear work. That's, uh, that's a topic for an entire podcast, I think, but, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, and honestly, it's a hard thing, you know, with athletes, especially young athletes, um, you know, at this time of the year is, you know, they, they want to, um, well, A, they want to impress you with their numbers, but also, you know, they're, they're not thinking so long term. So yeah, you got to be like, no, go ahead and hold back. And it's okay if you're not rocking these numbers, because this is the point of this, you know? Yeah. For, for your bread and butter, six hour ride or two hour run, long aerobic work, do you uh, prescribe that by, by heart rate? Is that the, the guiding light there that the athlete should follow or do you work with pace power for those two? What, what is the most important and how do you prefer to prescribe those aerobic sessions? Yeah, well, so that's a great question because there's a couple different answers to that. In general, me, I love, I, I work with power numbers and I don't, I, I use heart rate like as a backup on cycling and to watch for decoupling um, with power numbers, but in general and prescriptively, um, I use only power numbers on the bike, um, no matter what time of the year it is, even if it's an aerobic ride, you know, and, um, you know, like you said, uh, a six hour aerobic ride, I would say, you know, it's like one to two zones, maybe one to three zones, depending upon where we are and what's going on. Um, with running with my specific athletes, I love to use pace zones. I, cause you know, I'm familiar with them enough and I know where they are. I know where they need to be. So I like to prescribe based on um, pace, you know, so I'll say you need to be running at, you know, this, you know, average this per kilometer type of thing, um, even for these long aerobic runs. Um, but I'll also look at heart rate for that, too. I have a tendency, and this is kind of like the, the caveat or the asterisk to this, with running, if it's an aerobic run, I usually tell people, I usually don't give them a pace zone. Like, so it's kind of in contrast to what I said, but um, like, I'll just say, hey, you know, keep your heart rate low or, you know, keep it in this range and everything. And people, especially professionals, know the difference between, you know, aerobic and not aerobic. <laughs> so I don't necessarily have to say, hey, specifically run at this pace zone. Um, I do definitely, as I get into more intensity, you know, tempo work, et cetera, and, and on the bike, the same thing. Um, prescribe very specific zones, pace zones. And, um, and I think that's like, it's a critical part of my training is because it helps build the confidence in the athlete when they're seeing that they're hitting these specific pace zones. But me as a coach, like it knows, I guess I've been doing this long enough that I know if they can hold this power for this amount of time over this many intervals and, or, you know, this pace over this amount of time or this distance when they're running, I know, I have a really good idea of exactly where they are and they get a, a good idea of where they are. So it gives them confidence on race day to go out and execute, you know, the exact game plan. Um, kind of one other additional thing to this that I'd like to add is, 
you know, this time of the year is, uh, you know, a lot of, like you said, somewhat nonspecific, you know, go out and ride six hour type stuff. Um, however, I would say in, in particular with running, um, you know, this time of the year that is, you know, what a lot of the athletes are doing. But as we progress into the season, um, it, it becomes more or, or less so that's the case. Almost every workout has some type of specificity in it. It's very rare, um, you know, as we get later into the season that I'm just like, hey, just go ride your bike, you know, for a few hours. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I actually, in a previous interview that I did today, we got to talking about uh, Lydiard and how Lydiard uh, prescribed. He's like, he's famous for obviously the aerobic base whole kind of concept. But that didn't mean that they were jogging around, but uh, like actually the, they were pretty solid, steady aerobic, kind of high aerobic almost, if you want to call them that, runs that they did when they went out on their long days. And, and, uh, and I guess that that's what you're alluding to there, that, uh, that, there's, <laughs> that the, the smell the roses kinds of run, rides and runs where you actually just go out and do whatever sort of pace or effort and it can be like a ride to the coffee shop with a bunch of friends and you don't need to uh, do anything more than just uh, spin the uh, spin the pedals at uh, in your uh, easiest gear and yeah do whatever like that that might be a very limited part of your training is that what you're saying there yeah and you touched on two things i'm a big lydiard fan <laughs> i do like lydiard i like his principles um i found well i his athletes were highly successful um, I've went to talks of his back when he was still alive and, um, he was just a, he's a very fascinating guy. And, um, and, um, I, and I mean, like I said, he, he was very successful and personally, my body responded to, um, Lydiard type training. So I am a Lydiard fan, but that is very true. And that's not to discount the importance of, you know, those, like you said, coffee shop rides, because those are super important, um, as long as they're balanced out, like you said, with the slight more specificity. And this is another kind of interesting tidbit. One major thing that I've learned, and I learned pretty quickly, working with East Africans is, um, and it's also funny when people, um, uh, the, like, when I'm working with people, uh, age groupers, uh, I'll say, with the East Africans, I guess, they're, very good at going really hard when they're supposed to go really hard, but they're also very good at going really easy <laughs> on their easy days. And, um, and what I'm saying is my age, like I'll have an, an amateur athlete, you know, come to visit me or do a training camp with me. And I'll say, well, you know, on this one day, I'll send you out running with the East Africans. And they're like, no way, there's no way I can do that. I mean, those guys are so fast and I'm like, no, no, trust me, you'll be fine. And, you know, they'll go for whatever, you know, 15 kilometer run at five minutes per kilometer with, you know, these people who are incredibly fast runners and, and they come home at the end of that day and you're like, you're right. You know, oh, that was an easy run. These guys aren't that fast. And then the next day we'll do some tempo work and, uh, you know, and they'll just get completely destroyed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because, but, but my whole thing about that is, is the East Africans, one major thing that I've learned from them. And, um, and I think it's a cliche of like, you know, Western, uh, you know, uh, co coaching and, and culture is, uh, you know, we have a tendency to go too hard on our easy days and, you know, not quite hard enough on our hard days. And, like I really uh, believe in that polarization of it. And like I said, working with the East Africans has even solidified that more in my brain because I see the benefit of them 
you know, going on these coffee shop rides or runs, whatever you want to call them, you know, and then, you know, the, the highly specific days the next day. Mm, yeah. So the word polarized or the term polarized training is something that is also getting a lot of traction for a number of years already. And uh, you mentioned like a lot of what you say uh, is uh, definitely agreeing with those principles. In the specifics with the polarized training of like, you know, eight sessions out of 10 easy or 80 to 90 percent of the time in at a low intensity training zone. Do, do you think that your training follows roughly those uh, those prescription in terms of the numbers as well? Or is it more uh, at a contextual level with just going really easy when you're meant to or and going really hard when when you're meant to? Well, I, I would say that like with the training that like I prescribe, like I don't specifically calculate, you know, percentages, like, you know, what percentage is an athlete at this, uh, you know, level. But I would say the, the, the crazy thing is, and I think this happens a lot with the training is at the end of the, you know, season or year, if you look back upon the weeks and everything, like people are within very close percentages, like with an 80, 20 type principle of, you know, uh, uh, intensity versus aerobic type work. And once again, and, but we're talking with, with different athletes, it varies. And let's say it varies, you know, one or 2%, you know, maybe a person 78, you know, 18 or a person's 82, uh, or I'm sorry. Yeah, that's what I meant. 82, 18, 78, 22%. Like it's pretty, it's pretty close and pretty dialed in with, with those athletes. And it just kind of like ends up falling out that way. Yeah. And, and does that, uh, does the athlete, uh, volume make, like if you compare a professional versus an amateur, is it still more or less the same within a certain margin of error there, as you mentioned, or is it, do the amateurs do more intensity or how, how do you think about that? Yeah. Well, so in general, I would say that professionals probably can handle a bit more intensity. And this is what I would say kind of, and not even breaking it <clears throat> down between amateurs and professionals, um, more looking at experience levels. And, uh, you know, if I'm dealing with an amateur who has been racing triathlon for 20 years, normally, historically, I would say, um, they probably need a little less foundation, a little less base, you know, and will respond quicker to that base and be able to add intensity earlier in the program, respond good, or I'm sorry, or add intensity a little bit later in the program, respond to it relatively quickly in a preparation for a race. Um, if, uh, it, it, and, you know, the same as most pros obviously have, you know, pretty big foundation, you know, in themselves, like from either a previous sport or from doing this sport or some type of endurance sport for a lot of years. So, kind of the same thing is I would say that they respond quicker and, but their buildup needs to be, uh, even, um, you know, maybe, maybe less. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh, all clear. And when we're talking about intensity and the intense workout, so one of the things that uh, we talked about already is the specificity. So, uh, you will, I'm sure be doing a certain race specific workouts in the lead up to a race. But uh, especially for Ironman athletes, that's maybe not, or that's not particularly intense uh, in the grand scheme of things. So, uh, so, and you also mentioned going really hard when you should go really hard. So, so how big a part do does those really hard workouts, the really high intensities, how how much how big a part do, does that play in your athlete's preparation? And when do you 
put that in because it's probably not now in the base season based on what we've been discussing, but uh, uh, we right. when does it happen? <laughs> right. Well, you know, it's specificity. I mean, you know, l- looking at, uh, once again, depending upon the athlete, you know, 12 weeks out from like a super high priority race is when, you know, we really start getting into specific work and, um, you know, and putting in, cause that allows you to put in, uh, you know, a few really solid blocks and, and get a really good idea of where you are. But, um, I would say like, that's kind of to answer that part of the question. The other, uh, question or part of the question is like, uh, how, you know, how much do you go over say race pace type stuff or, you know, like you said with Ironman type stuff, um, yeah, if, I mean, if I go tell a person to go for a two-hour ride at Ironman pace, it's probably not going to be too big of a problem. You know, when Ironman pace becomes a problem is at the five-hour mark. Yeah. And, uh, so, so, but replicating that type of work and, um, and, uh, and also, or this is another kind of key thing, is stimulating, overstimulating on the front end of a workout and then doing, so going, you know, above race pace stuff, doing intervals at above race pace at a harder level fatigue. Um, and then, you know, and then walking into more Ironman type pace stuff or, um, kind of another version of that is to be stacking workouts. So, you know, stacking days so that you're replicating. So, you're uh, replicating Ironman feel and or fatigue or similar levels of fatigue, um, you know, without having that much volume or risking injury, you know, by saying, hey, you're just going to run, you know, 20 or, you know, 40 kilometers today or whatever. Um, so that's kind of like uh, uh, two things is like, um, I don't know if that's making sense, but like by putting, by stacking sure. the workout. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. Tra- training in a doing the race specific uh, work in sort of pre fatigue state. How, however, you achieve that, whether it's in the same workout or, or by uh, the stacking of of prior days workouts. Yep. Yep. Exactly. And and I guess the question, uh, like another question, is uh, I imagine that your runners they will be doing track intervals at uh, pretty fast. Let's say ten k, five k race pace, even if they are primarily focusing on. Uh, on the half or full marathon and does that apply to to your ironman triathletes as well that they will be doing those uh, if we want to call them vo2 max type of intervals almost uh, at least if we're talking close to 5k race pace yeah yeah definitely yeah and i will then that's very much so even with the ironman athletes and especially if that's a weakness or an area you know in which they're weak i feel like you know, with the Ironman athletes, like the first thing that we need to make sure is there is the strength and the ability, you know, to, to run the volume off of the bike or whatever. But, but yeah, adding in, you know, like said, obviously with Ironman athletes, there's less of that, like say less of that than even with a marathon runner. Um, because once again, your ability, kind of like what you were talking about before is if you talk about an athlete, um, if if I tell one of my Ironman athletes to go run Ironman pace marathon today, um, they probably could, <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. They yeah. probably wouldn't. I mean, it, it sure. It'd be a good tempo effort. I mean, like I said, Ben Hoffman ran a two thirty six, and yeah, that's, that's no, that's pretty darn fast, no matter how you slice it. But, um, but you, you can, uh, uh, you, he, he could do it though is, is the point. And you know, it's the trick is doing it off the bike. So, 
I do, because of that though, because he could do that, it definitely, we do inject more, um, like you said, we do some VO2 fart-like type work, definitely in that those last final phases and some higher intensity, longer repeats, um, you know, too, that are definitely um, faster than race pace. Yep, that makes makes perfect sense. Uh, do you, you mentioned there the, uh, at a point the difference between long course and uh, short course training. So if we can just uh, uh, just briefly uh, recap this, like what, what are your thoughts on the differences where they exist and also where they are where they don't exist, where they might be very similar in how you approach the the different distances. Right. Well, I think one key thing with short course racing is if you're talking draft legal or not. So yeah, let's let's assume um, draft legal. So okay. yeah, yeah. Well, so draft legal, um, you know, it's so much of a lactate uh, metabolizing lactate type of an event. You know, it's it's very aggressive. It's very hard. It's very punchy. And I would say. That's not a scientific term, but that's the exact, that's the difference um, between Ironman racing for the most part. And, and, and I'll kind of get into details with that a little bit, but, um, you know, and, uh, and Olympic distance draft legal racing and Olympic distance draft legal racing. A lot of it is, it's like bike racing in a sense in that you're either responding to, uh, to a move, to an attack, to, <laughs> to, uh, you know, uh, an event and uh, or you're creating that in, in Olympic distance racing in Ironman racing. A lot of times you're not, you know, it's a lot more internal. It's a lot more steady. Sure. There's attacks. Um, they're not as aggressive. Um, you know, you have more time to respond to them. You can respond to them in your own time um, and all of that. So it makes it actually, you know, uh, somewhat different with, with the training as well, because when we're talking about specificity and you're talking about an Olympic distance athlete, you do that type of stuff, you know, a lot more of the on off stuff, a lot more of the anaerobic, uh, type work, a lot more of that, you know, anaerobic threshold type work, VO2 max work, like what you're saying, basically getting an athlete to the point where they can go very hard, bounce back, go very hard, bounce back, go very hard, bounce back and on and so forth. <laughs> you yeah. know, as an Ironman athlete, um, you know, those workouts are a lot more like, can you just go really, really, really hard for a, a long time? <laughs> so, yeah, but uh, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, they are actually, you know, quite different. One principle that I believe in with both of those, and this goes back to once again, some old school running days, um, and even looking at, uh, like using Sebastian Coe, who now is the head of the IAAF, as you probably well know. But, um, you know, if you look, he was an 800 meter runner and 1500 meter runner, which we'll say that's analogous to an Olympic distance triathlete. Um, you know, not totally aligned, but actually in some ways it is. And, um, um, you know, that guy still did a tremendous amount of, if you look at his training, he still did a tremendous amount of, um, you know, strength work, and he did a tremendous amount of volume, actually, you know, especially when you talk about like periodization, but even when he was racing, you know, 1500 meters, 800 meters, and he was the best in the world, um, you know, he was still uh, holding pretty good volume. And so I would say that a similarity, although not at the same levels, but um, at least for me with uh, uh, Olympic distance, uh, you know, top level world-class athletes that are doing draft legal racing, I still like personally, I still believe in getting, 
the, you know, the big base work in and the big volume in, and definitely, um, you know, in that base type season. But even as they're into race season, I like to maintain a relatively uh, high level of volume and strength because ultimately at the end of the day, even in an Olympic distance race, you need to have uh, you know, that uh, uh, ability to respond to aggressive attacks and also create them in yourself. But at the end of the day, you're still running a 10K after swimming 1500 meters and biking 40 kilometers, which takes, there's a, certainly a strength component to that. Yeah, for sure. And uh, and the ability to recover from those anaerobic bursts is heavily dependent on the aerobic uh, system of the athlete. So, exactly. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, a funny anecdote about, I think it was Sebastian Coe that, uh, according to legend at least, went out to run three times on Christmas Day because he was scared that uh, his rival of the time, whose name I can't remember, uh, was uh, was also running. And uh, so so he went out for a first and then a second and then maybe even a third run, if I, <laughs> if I yeah, get I that think, right. I think, I, I, think I, I think I've seen that uh, that as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I woke up on Christmas Day and yeah, I was feeling... Yeah, like, well, if he's running, you know, twice, then I better run three times. <laughs> yeah, for for mid mid distance runner. Uh, yeah, what about the similarities and differences uh, from what we talked about now, uh, from the perspective perhaps of like the ideal uh, professional athlete scenario? What are the similarities and differences that age groupers that still form the majority of of our listenership should take into account when applying these principles to their training? You know, I mean, a big thing, well, we talked about this before, and um, I always say this, the principles are identical, you know, for uh, uh, an age group athlete versus a professional athlete. I mean, physiology is physiology. Sure. I mean, people, you know, pros, you know, might have, you know, higher levels of this or whatever, or more of this, but, um, but still like, it, it just needs to be adapted to that specific level some, a couple things that are important and like, I can't preach this enough, but is the, um, you know, treating your hard days hard and your easy days easy. And I think that this is almost more of a problem with age group athletes than it is with professionals. And, you know, they get caught up in their, you know, group, uh, you know, whatever easy day, or they think that just, you know, going extra hard on easy days is going to, you know, make them a better athlete. And ultimately, you know, it doesn't allow them to, it, it basically softens uh, their ability to do or push at the level that they need to push at their, um, um, you know, on their hard days or whatever. So I think that's a, a really big thing with age, age group athletes is like making sure that they are taking it easy and that they are incorporating rest into their schedules because that's big. I, I would say with age groupers more than with professionals, like I definitely get the uh, people who, you know, they just think that more is better. Um, and that, you know, and, and I always say if more was better then you know, then it would be pretty easy, like for me to train the best Ironman athlete in the world, I would just give them more than anyone else and they would win. Right. <laughs> so yeah. uh, that's obviously not the answer, but I think people, you know, sometimes get caught up with that. But, um, another big thing with age groupers that was what I would say is, is creating and following a plan. And um, the other, I find with some type, some age group athletes, um, you know, we were touching on this before, but that they're always at a good level of fitness. You know what I mean? They don't give themselves an opportunity to fall out of shape, which also doesn't give them an opportunity to pop into, um, you know, like really great 
shape. So if we're looking at a scale from one to 10, they're hovering around a seven all year long, but they're never getting to that 10 because they don't ever let the, the they, they don't allow themselves to get to that three either, you know? Mm. And like, I, I, I would really like encourage age groupers to, you know, allow that to create a season and a schedule that allows them to have these really high peaks, but also have some downtime. Um, even if they don't feel like they need it, it's, it's important. What would the downtime look like for you? Would you uh, prescribe two weeks uh, off or uh, four weeks of just random exercise at most X amount of minutes per day, or if you give uh, some examples of what, what it could be? No, totally. I like, I would say, I mean, <clears throat> if someone's comfortable with it and some people aren't, I would say, like you said, after your biggest race of the season to take two weeks completely off. And that doesn't, you know, we're all triathletes. And so um, most of us, you know, completely off doesn't exist, which is fine. But basically, when I say two weeks off, it means no structure, you know what I mean, wake up, do what feels good. Um, you know, and, and like with athletes that I work with, I'll give them parameters. If we have a two weeks, like say two weeks off period, I'll be like, okay, you know, like, I'm not going to put anything on your schedules <clears throat> this, this two weeks. Um, however, you know, if you do do something, don't do any swims over 2000 meters. Don't do any runs over an hour and don't do any bike rides over two hours, <laughs> you yeah. know, and, and, and all of that, if you do any of that, you know, uh, don't do more than two workouts a day and also keep it all aerobic, like nothing over the two zone. Yeah. So, um, but then normally, you know, after that, like having a two week, what, you know, like preparatory type period where basically you're doing just that, what I just said is, you know, a, a bunch of aerobic work with just range of motion, form, technique, you know, that type of stuff to get into it. But, you know, you look at, I mean, the race calendar anymore with Ironman, half Ironman, and even you know, Olympic distance racing is you could, I mean, it's, it's super easy to race year round if you wanted to, um, especially if you're willing to travel. But, you know, say historically, like for Finland or, you know, the United States, you know, Europe, uh, especially Northern Europe, uh, you know, our off time is normally, uh, you know, November-ish, December-ish. And it falls in, you know, it, it aligns well with that, where you can actually give yourself a couple months in that period to do very completely aerobic work. So, you know, maybe a month of that is like the super light stuff, like I said, two weeks of nothing, two weeks of pretty light range of motion stuff, and then a month of basically like, you know, simple aerobic work. Um, and then, you know, and then by January, you're starting to get into it, considering maybe your first race is in, you know, April or May or something. Yeah. And, and how do you, so you mentioned recovery earlier and that, that you consider that super important for the age groupers, especially, uh, how does that factor in the actual structure of the plan? Do you like to prescribe regular rest days completely off or just, uh, regularly have that lighter week where, or deload week, so to say, well, what would the specifics look like? Both. And, you know, it's athlete dependent, of course. Um, but definitely, um, you know, like in, like I historically use uh, three to four week cycles. So either, you know, two weeks up with like one week down and we're talking with age groupers here, you know, especially if they have work schedules and stuff that they're working around, um, you know, either two weeks up and one week down and or three weeks up and one week down. So, you know, either a three or four week cycle there. Um, I think and when I say down, you know, normally the percentages, uh, the two things on that down week or rest week or rest five day period or whatever it is, is normally, like I said, three to seven days is, you know, uh, volume load is probably at, say, 70%. So it's actually not like, you know, totally cutting out the volume. Intensity drops significantly, though. So it's more 
heart rate rest than it is, you know, even like, you know, leg, like standing time rest. So, um, yeah, I'm a, so that's like on a, well, and I guess I maybe should have started with a yearly cycle and, um, saying a yearly cycle, I would go through that, you know, two or three times, depending upon when people's races are. And, um, like I said, with it, it, like, let's say you're doing three races a year, I would say after your first race, taking a week really light and then kind of get going back into it again after your second race, taking a week really light to nothing, um, then getting back into it again. And then after that last race, going through that cycle, what we just talked about with like, you know, actually taking a couple weeks down yeah. and then really kind of gradually when we're talking about a monthly basis, like said the two or three weeks up, um, with the one week down with that one week, um, like you said, probably 70% load, but with no, uh, high heart rate stuff in general, um, and then, uh, and then within a weekly basis, you know, it's like, personally, I, I like to do sometimes blocks of a couple days. So it's not like a traditional, like one day up, one day down, one day up, one day down, one day up, one day down. Like, you know, sometimes I'll do an overload of two days and then take two days down from that. And some days it's an overload of two days with one day down. It just depends upon how big of that overload was and also how how fit the athlete is and how quickly I know they're recovering and or adapting to the training. Yeah. Yeah. The microcycles uh, is another topic that uh, could form a, a really long and interesting podcast, I think, but uh, sure. let's leave it at that for now. Um, <laughs> one thing that I do want to get into is uh, nutrition. Uh, so what uh, do you, what are your thoughts around that for triathletes both on the professional and amateur level? I guess I don't, assume that there will be any big differences there no there's not once again i mean it's pretty it, you know it's pretty similar um as far as and are you talking about like race day or um, pre-race nutrition or are you just talking about nutrition in general yeah let's touch up, uh, upon uh, nutrition in general uh first and then we can touch upon uh, race day nutrition yeah um yeah nutrition in general i mean i'm pretty once again this is what my graduate work was in at least partially and um like I would say I'm pretty traditional and, and, uh, and it's simple to me, I guess <laughs> I always see, you know, all these fads in nutrition and ultimately, um, you know, what it comes down to is eating clean, whole food <laughs> and whether that means totally vegan or, you know, like, or eating meat or whatever. I mean, I know that a, a big trend right now with that, you know, that documentary on Netflix and, um, you know, is like more of a vegan diet, which I think is actually is completely fine. And like, if I had an athlete come to me and say, Hey, I'm, you know, not eating any meat protein, I'd be like, that's great. We can totally make that work. And you can definitely be still highly successful by doing that. But I also, if a person said I have to eat meat, I would say that's totally fine too. And we can make that work. What I think is important is making sure and just being conscious of making sure that you are kind of a couple core things, making sure that you're obviously getting food in at the right time to um, ensure proper recovery. And then also trying to eat, like I said, eat like nutrient rich foods that are, um, uh, you know, as whole as possible. And also uh, like, you know, trying to avoid anything that's processed and sugars. And I really, sugar has an incredibly important role um, so when I say avoid sugars, um, you know, there's times where you shouldn't and, and I'm a believer in that too. And, um, that, you know, I'm, I'm not a giant believer in that, oh, we're going to try to race this Ironman, you know, um, you know, on, on fat stores, because 
at certain intensities, that's just not possible. Can we get maybe more efficient at processing it? Yes. But, but anyway, um, you know, sugar, like, like I said, avoiding refined sugars during the day, um, unless we're talking about specific recovery periods, but just kind of avoiding that junk, like I'm a big advocate of too. Um, so like I said, kind of, uh, uh, three key things there is eating whole foods, eating them at the right time and avoiding the bad stuff. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think that's, uh, that, that makes total sense. It's uh, simple and it's uh, not dogmatic. It, I, I like it. <laughs> right. Well, Personally. the funny thing is, is, and I mean, I feel like strength training is similar this way. I mean, we talk about this with periodization, but uh, when you talk about general coaching philosophies of me, I'm kind of, I, I like it. It's pretty simple. You know what I mean? You, you need to, <laughs> you take care of yourself, you know, uh, you know, there's no secret magic bullets here. And, uh, and you know, with nutrition, I really, you know, feel that way. There's always some new trend, but I mean, the funny thing about these nutritional trends is if you look at what was trendy 10 years ago, isn't anymore. So that must've meant that it wasn't really all that, you know, important, but what we always come back to is, uh, is those kind of key principles that I was just talking about, you know, <laughs> said I, I, people always want it. And I mean, it's, and it sells books and it sells magazines and it sells, uh, you know, whatever, but, uh, you know, just yeah, keeping it simple as my college coach used to always say, you know, that we follow the kiss philosophy and uh, that's K I S S. And, um, you've probably heard of kiss philosophy as a keep it simple. And, um, but his was keep it simple, stupid. Yeah. <laughs> so that's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. And you're right with, uh, the fads come and go, but, uh, one thing that uh, we haven't seen is the, uh, try to live on the processed food kind of fad where people are advocating for that being healthy. So, uh, that, that's something that has remained the same that, uh, that we like clean eating, as you say, and, uh, and then, uh, we can work with, with that and work around that. Right. Well, using real quickly, the East Africans again, as a, uh, example, they eat, I always say there's a reason why you don't, Ethiopian restaurants you do see, because Ethiopian food is like very flavorful and, and pretty amazing. Kenyans, and who I spend more time with the Kenyans, Kenyan, there's a reason why you don't see Kenyan food restaurants. And the reason why is because it's a very limited list of ingredients and it's not super flavorful. <laughs> yeah. so, however, these guys are some of the best athletes in the world. They're doing something right. And if I could describe their diet, it would be in one way. It's incredibly simple. And it's also incredibly whole. You know, they're eating, especially at training camps in Kenya, stuff that they're growing right there, you know, meat that they're processing right there. And, um, and the funny thing about the Kenyans too, and I mean, this is a daily part of my ritual is, um, you know, they drink tea and they drink British style tea uh, you know, 24 hours a day. And, you know, we always talk about, you know, what's the optimal recovery drink and, you know, chocolate milk, they had that whole campaign. But if you look at what the Kenyans drink for tea, which I'm serious at their house, if you go to their house right now, there's a giant pot of tea um, on, on their stove and it's there all day. <laughs> and um, it is, you know, one part black tea, one part milk, and, and then, and, you know, and then it always has some sweetener in it. And if you think about that, you know, like just sugar, pure glucose sugar, um, it is like the optimal recovery drink. And it seems like a really simple thing, but it's like pretty amazing recovery drink in itself. So just intuitively, the Kenyans are on a good diet and there is nothing fancy about that diet. It's very simple, but very whole. Yeah. One final topic before we move on to the rapid fire questions. And that is uh, something I saw in an interview that you did uh, 
on YouTube, on a YouTube channel, and also about uh, in being intuitive in your training and uh, and how that is kind of getting lost. Can can you discuss this and discuss your thoughts on on that? Say, sorry, will you ask that again? Uh, yeah. So your thoughts on being intuitive with your training and in ah. your training and and how that is something that uh, is getting lost a bit uh, this these days. <laughs> Absolutely. No, yeah, that is, it's huge. And uh, I, I, uh, I think, in a sense, that's what the difference between a great athlete and a good athlete is. And I'll also say with coaching, it's very much the case. Um, you, you know, we're starting to get these athletes and coaches that think that the numbers answer everything, and they certainly don't. There's tons of, from a coaching side of things, there, you have to be able to recognize you know, what an athlete's responding to and what they're not, both emotionally, psychologically, and physiologically. And sure, you can crunch numbers all day long, but the numbers are easy to crunch. You know, there's books about that. Like actually understanding the athlete, listening to the athlete, and seeing stuff, like intuitively seeing things, that's what makes a really great coach. But along the lines of an athlete, it's the same thing as like, you know, I'll get asked, it's kind of the whole, uh, you know, like joke or cliche that, you know, oh, I don't have my, my power meter is not working today. So should I even go for my bike ride? <laughs> yeah. Like, yes, you're still going to actually get some benefits from this workout. And not only that, but it might be a good practice in for you to try to hit these intervals at these numbers without actually seeing the numbers. You know what I mean? Because you have to become intuitive with it. And, you know, I think it's funny too, because uh, like, I mean, I could use a dozen examples of, you know, people, oh, you know, in the race, I was supposed to push this power. Um, but for some reason, my power meter wasn't working right. And I could tell, but I wanted to hit that power anyway. So, you know, I was just trying to hit it. And, you know, by the halfway mark, I was totally wasted. And it was like, okay, yes, you know, you should have intuitively <laughs> said, you know, something's not right here. So I can do this. And, or nutritionally, like you prescribe something nutritionally, uh, during a race for an athlete. And they're like, well, I was puking right away, but you said I had to keep on bringing these calories in. So I just kept on eating and I kept on puking. And at that point, it's very clear that the athlete has lost touch with like actually listening to their own body. And I think that the way that we coach, and I mean, it's part of our responsibilities as coaches, um, you know, is to try to add that level of intuition and understanding and understanding the, uh, you know, sensations in their body. And like, I just, uh, I'm just finishing up this book. Um, I'm um, writing with Chris Foster. It's actually on Triathlete Magazine. It's about sprint distance racing. But, you know, one of the first parameters that we talked about in, in uh, like understanding where you are is using RPE. And I mean, so rating of perceived exertion, which is just an old, old school method. And you know, I think people like to discount it, but it's hugely important. And it's maybe the first thing that we should be teaching athletes is, you know, how to, uh, you know, measure and understand yours. And like I said, kind of going back to the, the first part of that, that I said is, I really feel like that's the difference between good athletes and great athletes. Great athletes are able to both look at the numbers, you know, the actual analytics, the actual data and use that data, but they're also incredibly aware of, of their own um, sensation and, you know, and how they feel and where they are um, at that level. And I think that's one thing that I love about working with pro triathletes is, um, you know, sure, we can talk numbers all day long, but they really do truly understand their bodies. And, 
Um, for me as a coach, it's nice because I know that when they give me feedback on fatigue or on, you know, how an effort level feels, they're so in tune um, and that that it's often, you know, very accurate and very true. And I, I can trust them a lot. Whereas sometimes with, you know, age group athletes, it's it's way more of a challenge because, you know, they're so obsessed and and connected with the numbers as opposed to, you know, how they feel. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. So let's move on to the final segment, which is the rapid fire questions. And the first one is, what's your favorite book, blog, or resource related to triathlon? Ooh, boy, that's tough. Oh, man, I can't. Um, I honestly, I don't. Um, I don't have any favorite. I, I with triathlon, and I mean, maybe this is a good thing. Is I would say I get my information from everywhere. <laughs> and I also recognize like, uh, you know, some of the things for, for what they are, you know, I mean, some things are, it's entertainment value only. Um, other things are, uh, you know, like, I guess I go to some places for results. I go to some places for coaching philosophies, but I would say it's not even, um, uh, you know, specifically just, uh, you know, triathlon related, it's more like coaching training related. And honestly, there's just, you know, multiple people on Twitter that are constantly, um, you know, publishing or not publishing, but I'm um, reviewing and or linking to, you know, specific articles. And I pick those things up all the time. In fact, um, with, we have a, uh, with our coaching group, we have, uh, you know, frequent phone calls with the entire group and every phone call, I always send out one of the latest, greatest, you know, articles, whether it's on strength training or on nutrition or on, you know, some specific interval workout or something to the group for us always to discuss. So I guess that's kind of a cop out on that answer, but I would say I get my information from kind of everywhere. And I mean, and we live in the information age and sifting through it is actually sometimes the greatest challenge. Yeah, definitely. That was a bit more than 15 seconds, by the way. So oh, I'll challenge sorry, you yeah, to, to keep it to that uh, for the next ones. We're, and uh, the next one is what personal habit that's helped you achieve success? Uh, consistency and, uh, like just a constant, a constant belief and, uh, wanting to always learn more, always wanting to know more. And finally, what do you wish you had known or done differently at some point in your athletic or coaching career? Been more patient with myself, uh, both athletically, but also as a coach, just be more patient with myself. And uh, tell the listeners where they can find out more about uh, you and your coaching business and everything that you got going on. Yeah, for sure. Um, uh, you know, we're on Instagram at Bolton Endurance. Uh, BoltonEndurance.com uh, is our website. And those are probably the best two places um, to check out. We're also on Facebook. You could do a search for us. And, you know, we do, we do posts um, on those things, just, you know, race results and different, you know, various things and everything, but our websites, like all the information about me and the coaches involved with our group. Yeah. We'll have linked to that links to that in the show notes. So people can find it easily. Uh, thank you so much, Ryan. It's been, uh, I really enjoyed talking to you. It's uh, we've covered a lot of ground, I feel. So it's <laughs> yeah, uh, sure. a, a meaty episode, I, I want to say, but uh, it's been really fun. Yeah, no, excellent. Yeah. I enjoyed it as well. I hope that you enjoyed that episode. The show notes, as usual, can be found on thattriathlonshow.com. And remember that I have made a tag page where you can find all uh, previous and future episodes that are tagged elite, like this episode where we talk about how coaches design the training for their elite athletes.
And uh, the next one is uh, the final interview for now in this uh, sort of lineup of elite coaching episodes. And in that interview, I will interview Ferris Al-Sultan, who is famous for winning the Ironman World Championships in 2005. He has also placed on the podium twice in addition to that. And uh, probably these days, because that's 15 years ago, he might be even more famous for being the coach of Patrick Lange, who placed uh, third and then went on to win Kona twice. But Ferris now works actually with the German Triathlon Federation. So his uh, current role is to try to develop the next generation of Olympic medalists on the draft legal scene. And uh, that is an interesting task because Germany has had so much success on the long distance scene, but really for many years had the the draft legal success has been non-existent really uh, but they have some young and up-and-coming athletes that uh, can turn that around and with some good coaching expertise that Ferris will help provide uh, i'm sure that germany will be a nation to look out for in the next few years if not in the tokyo olympics it was a great discussion that i had with Ferris, so definitely you don't want to miss that subscribe to the podcast if you aren't already if you need any help with your training, whether it's in the form of a ready-made training plan, a customized training plan, or individual coaching, check out scientifictriathlon.com, where we offer all of those product and service levels to suit your needs. Big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Take their free online sweat test to get a personalized hydration strategy for your next race and get 15% off your order with the promo code DATTRIATHLONSHOW15. And big thanks to Roka, the world-leading manufacturers of wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, sunglasses, and prescription glasses. You can find them on roka.com forward slash TTS to get 20% off your entire order. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.